1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Kenneth L. Schonk, professor of history at University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, to talk about his new book, Ireland's New Traditionalists, Fianna Fail, Republicanism and Gender, 1926 to 1938, out this year, that's 2021, with Cork University Press. Welcome, Ken. Hi, thank you.
0: It's a pleasure being here.
1: Oh, it's delightful! I'm so happy to have you on the show. So, uh, how badly did I murder the title of your book there?
0: Oh, you were pretty close. Um, there are a couple pronunciations of the political party. Um, the the easiest way for non-Irish speakers is Fianna Fáil. Fianna, uh, Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil. Um, uh, If you want to get a little more Irish with it, you would say uh, Fianna Fáil. So, but we'll just go with Fianna Fáil.
1: Fianna Fáil. All right. I think I sound less ridiculous there. All right. How are things with you? How's Wisconsin?
0: Uh, It's great, um, for the most part. Um, I live in uh, one of the most beautiful places in the state, right on the Mississippi River. Uh, And um, I'm just finishing up my eighth year at uh, UW-La Crosse. And uh, so things are great. Got my first COVID shot a couple weeks ago.
1: Woo, that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You are having a good year. Yeah, You guys had a brutal winter, didn't you?
0: Uh, It wasn't too bad. We had, um, about three weeks there where, uh, the, the, uh, temperature barely broke, um, freezing. Um, but, uh, in terms of snowfall, it was fairly, um, mild. So it hasn't been too bad. And now spring Hmm. is here and we see green and, um, our crocuses and other plants are starting to come from the ground. So it's exciting.
1: How sweet. You sound like a real Midwesterner, and I know you're not. I know you're a California boy, but it sounds like the Midwest is getting in, getting to you. It's our yeah. secret. Everyone okay. eventually assimilates. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so let's get to the book. I want to contextualize okay. the current work and like you as an historian. So I'm checking out your CV, and I see that you have a lot of interests, right? So you're a go-to guy for the history of sport. Um, And then you published historical theory and methods through popular music, 1970 to 2000. Those are the new saints. It was Paul Grove 2017, Um, which is this great book exploring historical theory and methods through our friend rock and roll. And then I see this other track, which seems like this other kind of maybe more serious meh that shows you an historian of modern as an historian of modern Ireland, your dissertation. From a, the Wayback Machine and uh, was titled Irish Blood, English Heart, Gender, Modernity, and the Third Way Republicanism and the Formation of the Irish Republic. And then you've done a good bit on 20th century Ireland before this book. Uh, and so I'm just, its I see a lot of thread. So how do you character, characterize yourself? What what are you?
0: Um, by training, I'm a historian of, of modern Ireland. Um but I also have these, these side projects, uh, which you allude to or say, um, including the history of sport, which is more or less a, a teaching uh, thing. But it also is reflective of the thing that really got me into history as a, as a, as a boy, really, was, uh, was through sport. And that's how I learned to contextualize the past in a lot of ways, was by By looking at sport, especially baseball, and that's something that I think my parents and grandparents passed on to me was a love of baseball, but also um, an acknowledgement of of the past through baseball. And so sport has always been there. I played sports through high school and into college, and I even coached sports when I was a a high school teacher in in California for a time. And so sport has always been there, and it it was really the, the prism through which I was able to understand and contextualize the past. The other side of that um, was as I got a little bit older, was rock and roll. Um, uh, you know my parents would always play the Beatles, the 60s stations was always on the radio and so I became fascinated with the past through music and in making comparisons between then and now. but what I realized now, uh, and this is what informed the rock and roll book in a lot of ways, is that pop forms of popular culture, rock and roll and, and, and sports, especially baseball, became the 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 language in which I came to understand the world around me. For example, um I was uh introduced to Irish politics by way of U2. Um I would see the news about the troubles in the early 80s as a young young kid and it didn't quite make sense to me. And then I started to listen to U2 and it gave me some context that I was able to understand that. And so forms of popular culture help develop the language of of understanding the present but also the past uh, and and so i we took that my co-author dan mcclure and i uh used that as a starting point to develop this book on on uh, on the history of rock and roll he bringing in the the theory side of it mostly that's his strength me bringing in more of the the pedagogical aspect of it uh and with that Um, started to think about how we could explain to others how to contextualize and view the past through a common language that we already have, which is our language of understanding or the understanding of the language of popular culture. And so for me, and and this came out in the process of writing those books, is that when we were watching MTV and we were seeing Madonna, we were seeing culture club uh, videos, Frankie goes to Hollywood, we were watching music, but for whatever reason, it, it, it was also um, it was educational for us, because what I was really learning about was feminism and femininity, and aspects of queerness, and, and so on and so forth. And so uh, and then as we get into the later 80s, when MTV finally started playing music by black artists, um, being taught by public enemy, Boogie Down Productions, De La Soul, that that, that was uh, our alternative education. And so that's something that I've built off of in, in, in my research, uh, as in my side project, so to speak. Um, but in terms of, of Ireland, how I came to Irish history uh, was almost by accident in a lot of ways. Uh, when I was doing a, a master's in history, um, I entered a master's program in history at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, and I had no intent of, of going on and doing a Ph.D., um, but it was something to do in the evenings when I was teaching high school. And there I was supposed to uh, I, I entered uh, with the intent of being an American historian. But um, for reasons I don't uh, need to get into, I, I opted to not do the American track and um, decided to go down the European track. But the problem was I don't have really any foreign language skills. And so i had to pick something that was rooted in english and so uh, i fell back onto something that had always been of interest to me which was ireland and and ireland's history uh and so that's where this book project began was first as a seminar paper then as a master's thesis then as the dissertation and then now years later finally as a manuscript (laughs)
1: <laughs> All right, um, that's an interesting story, kind of, of how this book happened. Um, I mean, but the the no the no language skills you do though you have Irish, which is incomprehensible.
0: Yeah, it's a difficult language to learn, and <laughs> and, and I have very little. I took a year of it, but um, uh, it's it's you can see why it is um, viewed as such a poetic language. It is lyrical and beautiful and um so expressive in a lot of ways but there are almost no cognates so to go from english to irish is really difficult um whereas if you go into the romance languages as you know there are some cognates there are some similar um, grammatical structures or even into german but with irish it's like starting from scratch and i think the only cognates that i know of are are, um, smithereens which is, uh, uh, based on an Irish word, smitterini, oh, uh, cool. and, uh, galore. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Wow. Those are two Irish, um, words that, that have been, uh, transported into English that I know of anyway.
1: I'm sure there is great cultural significance in how we got the like how those are the words that came from Irish into English. We'll probably have to talk about that over a beer sometime. Um, so, of all the things that you could have studied, though, with uh, modern Irish history, you went into this. Like, how did this book happen? What made you decide you wanted to fill the, to do this? Were there historiographical f- f- holes you were trying to fill? Like, what yeah. what
0: brought you here? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, there were some historiographical gaps that I found. Um, Irish history has is is it, totally understandable has a very strong connection to um, the nation's identity, to, to the, the nationalist history of it. And there are various narratives in Irish history, the Republican narrative that basically says England's wrong and English ca- England caused all the problems in Ireland. Um, there's the revisionist um, uh, approach, which which says, well, no, actually it's far more complicated than that. And then they talk about how we're in the post-revisionist uh, era, which means that uh, in Irish history we're opening ourselves up to conversations regarding gender and sexuality and class and and some other things that move away from this notion of 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 Ireland becoming a nation. Um, that's very general, of course. but um, what I found with looking at Irish history, at least the starting points, I found that there's plenty written on the famine in the nineteenth century. there's plenty written on the Gaelic revival. At the end of the 19th century, uh, which, by the way, is um, the major point of interest for my dissertation advisor Tim McMahon, um, and a lot on the 1916 Rising, and then to the Troubles, and so there are these these watershed moments that that have an immense amount of uh, research and writing done on them, and so I was trying to find where I could find some gaps, and I've always been interested in in interwar uh, Europe, interwar history. Um, you know, going back to my original interests in history, that's when my grandparents came of age. And so I talked a lot about the what it was like to live during the Depression. So it was always something that was of interest. to me, And so that was a starting point. And then as I started to investigate the interwar period in Ireland, um, in the period after Ireland uh, became the Irish Free State, up to the period that it became basically a republic, I found that there was very little written on it. And so that was a starting point. And then I became very much enthralled by the key figure of this period, which is a man, uh, a man by the name of Amin de Valera. And he is largely unknown in, in history outside of, of Ireland. Um, this is a guy who uh, was basically the, the, the key political figure in Ireland from 1918 up until the 1960s. Um, He served as as president of of Sinn Féin, he founded this party, Fianna Fáil, and um, he was prime minister or Taoiseach of Ireland for a number of years, then he became president of Ireland. Um, He was born in the United States. Um, He was scheduled to be executed in the wake of the 1916 Easter Rising, and was next in line to be executed before the British stopped it. Um, And... So I, I became intrigued by this figure and, and why he was largely ignored. Like if you go to Ireland, there there's very few places where you'll see De Valera Street or statues of De Valera. Everybody knows Michael Collins, but nobody knows uh, De Valera. And so I found that to be interesting too. And, and so those were the, the the starting points for me that got me interested in into this topic. And I also found historiographically that people or there. There's a lack of, of work on this interwar period in Ireland um, for whatever reason. Um, I think uh, in large part, it's because people tend to focus on the, the decade that precedes uh, this period, the 1960 Easter rising, the uh, Anglo Irish war, the Irish civil war, uh, of course, world war one. And so there was a gap there. Um, and, and, and the works that do exist, which are, are fantastic, tend to be more focused on the the political aspect of it, the inner machinations of of the party and of the government. And um I found that there was very little in terms of the party's connection to uh, Irish culture, the visual culture of politics in Ireland. And so those were the things that that drew me in uh, to to the topic,
1: okay. Um, so one of your stated aims was to situate Ireland. And Fianna Foyle within the broader European interwar zeitgeist. I and mean, can can you can you comment on that? What is what do you mean by? I mean, what is the interwar zeitgeist, and how, what do you do there?
0: Yeah, that's um, something that um, popped up as I was looking at sources, and I know we'll talk a little bit about sources later. But uh, in looking at some of the sources, I found that there was um, in, in the political ephemera of the party that there was a, a level of anxiety about the present. A level of anxiety about notions of gender and how the party presented itself as a corrective, as a way to fix the past, to build the nation toward the future, as a way to correct um, notions of masculinity and femininity in the wake of, of national trauma and crises, mirrors or parallels what is happening on the European continent. And so when um, I remember uh, pulling up some of these uh, uh, visual artifacts from uh, Irish newspapers and from, the, from Fianna Fáil in the 20s and 30s, I remember showing them to one of my professors at, at Marquette, where I did my PhD, who was a historian or is a historian of, of uh, interwar Germany. And, and she looked at it and said, this is fascist or fascistic, that, um, that there's a similarity in, in the responses to what's happening. And so I found in in those responses that, that that need to correct, that need to fix a problem of the present so that it can, um, I think, mesh past and present um, to, to build toward the future. And so there's a lot of futurist elements in, in the party's um, uh, propaganda. Um, That it's uh, about, in many ways, wish fulfillment. Um, Mm. But more than anything, we see a party that is actively trying to lead the nation in a new direction. In the case of Ireland, it was um, leading Ireland toward full independence from Great Britain, but also to correct the legacies of of colonialism, to, to correct the legacies of the violence that preceded the 1920s and 30s in Ireland. And so I saw in, in this party, much like you see in other parties in Europe at the time, um, a desire to be an activist government um, because the failures of capitalism and the depression uh, and, and the, the really, I use the word torpid a lot in, in the book, of uh, the torpid responses of governments to react to these kinds of things. And socialism was a, a no-go or communism anyway in Ireland for many reasons. Mostly the Catholic Church, uh, and so we see a, a, a party that is trying to navigate between capitalism, socialism, uh, and and bring the nation forward to to, to um, actively lead to to correct the ills of Ireland's past to create a big brighter future. And so that's where the title the the new tradition true new traditionalists comes in is that's seemingly uh, oxymoronic. in, you know how can you be traditional but new but that's one of the fundamental aspects of interwar European politics is is that janus uh like um or pale Genesis where you have the old and and the the new coming together as a pathway forward
1: yeah absolutely yeah you know I'm thinking about Italy obviously where I work where this mm-hmm. is exactly the same thing they were called the glories of mm-hmm. this kind of um really idealized past that never quite existed as like this idea for an idealized future that, you know, mm-hmm. in Italy is not coming. Uh, right, right. We'll talk about what happens in Ireland. We well, you mentioned your sources. Let's, let's hit on that right now. Um, so, uh, visual sources, you've got a lot of like illustrations, political cartoons. Mm-hmm. What else? Like t- tell me what else you use.
0: Yeah. The, the big, um, source, um, or, uh, the the basic sources that I use are the um, Irish newspapers from the time, primarily a newspaper called the Irish Press, which was um, began publication in 1931 and continued, I think, till the 1990s. But the Irish Press uh, was founded by Eamon de Valera, um, based on money that uh, he raised in the United States in the 19 teens and 20s. There's actually, I think, a Supreme Court case that uh, that uh, uh, dealt with with the funds, but he, he pulled those funds over and and started um, this newspaper. So much like the rest of Europe, you have parties with their own house organs, as they say, You know their, their own newspapers. And so um, I was fortunate enough to be at a university that had the entire run of these newspapers on microfilm. And so I began doing my dissertation research, I, I had an idea of the topic But in looking at these sources, I found a couple of things. One is there's on the front page, there's a political cartoon nearly every day that is essentially uh, expressive of what the party wants to do. But the the real entry point for me was on uh, page three, sometimes page five of every edition of the Irish Press was a page or most of a page dedicated to uh, matters related to women. And in there, I found that there were um, depictions of fashion, um, of, of what women should wear, of, um, what women should do inside the home and so on and so forth. And so having in mind this notion of the party being a corrective, um, I started to think about, okay, how are they trying to correct women? How are they trying to, um, portray women? What's the message that the party is sending to women? And a lot of this is based upon um, some of the work that uh, my friend Jason Knurk at Central Washington University has done, where he looks at the early 20, 1920s with a party called Come on the Goya. And he argued that one of the things that this party did was that they presented the Irish Republican side for Sinn Féin and then Fianna Fáil as being feminized, as being um, overly emotional or reactionary. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, the people who were the public face of republicanism in ireland in the early 1920s were women and so um they they tried to present um irish women as disrupting the the the, the gender dynamic in in ireland amongst other things and so what i found in these newspapers is that fianna fall was trying to redirect the energies of Irish women, to get them off the street and, and, and to stop their protests and whatnot, uh, but give them a carefully guarded political agency. Um, and in this this uh, dynamic, I found that they were allowing women or encouraging women to dress in a modern way. And that's something that I found very interesting in in looking at this over this period is that they're uh, encouraging women to wear the fashions of Paris or of New York or of other, you know, uh, fashion hotspots. But they are carefully guarded in saying, "Well, you can dress uh, in in such a manner. We prefer you to dress in in the old-fashioned way. But if you're going to dress modern, do it in muted colors." And that's, I think, it's the title of one of the chapters, which is "Bright Days Are Coming in Quaker Gray," right? And so there's this carefully guarded agency that, that women are being told. And then um, you also have added to the fact that that the party was saying through the newspaper that, yeah, you can wear modern fashions, but buy clothing and fabrics that are produced in Ireland. Um, if you're going to wear clothes, have uh, something that's gray, put on a colorful ribbon or some other, a scarf that not only is, is uh, made in Ireland, but is going to represent the colors of, of of the of fall of green or to wear a trumpet which was the symbol of the party and so they're redirecting the political energies of women to support this this more modern economic um, uh, thing and so this is uh, very much evident through the the visual culture that the party is promoting and so that became the launching point and so I started looking at other aspects of the the newspaper and I started to find, especially in a, in a supplemental newspaper called the Fianna Fáil Bulletin, um, where the party seems to try to re-masculinize, if that's a word, uh, Ireland. And so I found uh, a lot of charts, images that depict things that, that um, uh, can be described in no other way as, as being phallic. There's a picture in the book of, of wheat stacks that are not wheat stacks, if you look at them, um, of, of a lot of arrows pointed upward, um, a lot of uh, kinetic energy coming through in the ads that this is a party that is um, using masculinized uh, energy to, to bring the nation forward. And so I found this this duality here where I see the party through its visual culture trying to present an idealized Irish feminine and an idealized Irish masculine. And then that was the corrective, and that the party were these models. And that the party, and, and this is where I go a little off the rails, <laughs> I think, in my book, is, is that I see this idea of, of reiterating this, this heteronormative balance in the idea that this idealized Irish feminine as depicted in the Irish press and this idealized Irish masculine as depicted in the Fianna Fáil Bulletin and other sources are going to provide the basis of, of a new national coitus to be this new free nation um, and, and um, free from uh, the, the um, vestiges of, of British colonialism and the more recent past. And so th- those sources um, really started to, to present this idea of this is a party that is consciously doing something. I mean, if this was done accidentally, it's the the, the biggest and most fruitful accident in in history. <laughs> and so there's there's a, a a sense there that they're doing this, and and uh, and it goes up to 1937. Basically, this this kind of culture, because in 1937, um, De Valera and his party uh, presented to the people the Bunreacht na or the the Irish Constitution, uh, which in many ways established uh, a, a republic. Um, the constitution, by the way, is still in use today, um, but they got what they wanted. They got the new nation. Uh, and so then after that, you see things scaling back. And this is where this work also differs from a lot of the historiography because rightfully so the conventional wisdom is um, that Ireland has not been the most hospitable place for women, um, it, it, This the, the aforementioned constitution says that um and this has been stricken but uh the that women's place is in the home her place in the home is is, I think the quote and for and and, and also being a a place that's that's very socially culturally conservative um but I found in this period in this work very brief period relatively speaking that there was this openness uh, to, to women in many ways, a like, very guarded, um, uh, acceptance of, of the more modern women later in the, the run of the Irish press in the thirties, there were stories about how to become a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer for women. And so there's this guarded, um, uh, I think, I don't want to say liberalism, but this guarded acceptance of, of the more modern woman, uh, that, that, they slam the brakes on once, once Ireland becomes independent.
1: And this this modern Irish woman, though, she's still in the home, right? I mean, um, I want to read the, from this advert, um, as the Irish would say, um, yes. for Dramona Soaps, which is the text you used to open chapter two. Is yours a real Irish home? Are you doing everything a patriotic Irish man or woman should do to support the industry of your com- country? We shall show you how you can have a real one hundred percent irish home not not only without entailing any sacrifice but with immediate advantage to yourself in the matter of quality and price. Um, and this I mean, that's an interesting and fairly clear, I think, this idea about what it means to be an Irish well, an Irish person who supports the home, but an Irish woman as well. It seems quite domestic, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah um, very much
0: domestic, but still working toward through that domesticity, working toward the aims of. Uh, a republican ireland
1: mm-hmm. and it feels that i mean the, the you there you have this this whole chapter really about the way that women are going to be integral in the creation you know in designing this ideal ireland mm-hmm. so then tell me what's an ideal irish man meant to be like i mean there's there sheaves of wheat and arrows so i it's yeah. some idea <laughs> but like, expand there please
0: yeah i think um the especially in the, in the depiction of men, we see that's where the futurism really comes in. Um, that Irish men were to be granted by Fianna Fáil the right to return to the land, to, to harvest the land, to, to work the land that was theirs. And that's where that, that traditional primordial side comes in, right? to the restoration of, of the masculine to, to the field. Right? But then there's also this, this futurist element of the party opening up factories for Irishmen to, to go to. And then there's some some really great images in, in the book uh, that, that depict this, where the party is depicted as the rising sun, which is very fascistic in a lot of ways. And I do want to mention that when I talk about interwar period and compare aspects of Fianna Fáil to to parties on continental Europe – I'm not saying that Fianna Fáil was fascist at all, uh, in in no way, shape, or form. There was actually a fascist party in Ireland. The blue shirts um, didn't go anywhere, basically. But but um, the, the the party depicts itself as the sun, the center, the the, the source of all life, and the the um, the new day dawning, shining over men marching into a factory. Right? They are um, they're just. They're, they're just laborers, they're workers, right? There's no flash about them. And, and this is in contrast to the way in which, um, they, they depict, uh, their opposition come on the Goyle later, thin Gale, um, and depict them as being these submissives to Britain. Um, they often depict, um, members of the opposition party in, in, um, uh, Coats with tails, of, of presenting them as you know these almost dandyish type people, and and they contrast that with themselves as the party of business suits and agricultural workers and so on. And, and there's an anecdote in the book about um, how uh, a papal legation came to Ireland in 1932, not long after Fianna Fail uh, is is voted into power, and um, the legation was met by. De Valera and others, and they were dressed in business suits. And um, somebody from the Vatican commented that it looked like they were being greeted by bankers as opposed to politicians. And so they present themselves as these very masculine, not hyper masculine, but but these masculine guys in contrast to um, uh, uh, the the, the British or the seemingly pro British politicians. And so they wanted to um, present. Um, a restored masculinity that was not only primordial and, 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 you know, returned to the Irish land, but also modern. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they talked about how um, double era had plans to, to um, start a, uh, an automobile uh, corporation in Ireland. They also tried to grow tobacco in Ireland, but that didn't work. Um, so there's this sense that, that Irish men would be, you know, one half of the equation to help restore the nation
1: hmm. Um, and uh, it seems like a very natural uh, way to, to it seems very natural to compare this this uh, sober farmer business suit wearing guy to the English dandy. But it, it, did that happen? You don't write about it all that much. Um, but are we just done with England at this point?
0: No, I, there's the, the chapter in which I talk about how um, this is the querying chapter. I think it's called mm-hmm. queering John Bull. In which um, we see a, a, a very strong effort by the party to present to other, essentially through gender, to other um, uh, its opponents. And so we see it almost kind of come full circle where Fianna Fáil was formed in the wake of Sinn Féin being feminized by opposition parties. Now FINA Fall is not necessarily feminizing, but um, calling into question the, the, the masculinity uh, in some ways of, of their, their political opponents.
1: Right. And, um, that chapter, uh, is <laughs> that chapter is great. Cause it starts with this meeting at Dublin castle. Uh, it's 1932. The Pope, the Pope has come, and Eamon de Valera meets him. And, um, I love that de Valera speaks in Irish and in Latin. Um, mm-hmm. and that seems incredibly significant to me um and not you know like here's here's who we are as a country mm-hmm. and it doesn't involve english
0: right right and and De Valera was very much an advocate of of the irish language um in in contrast uh to their political opponents who were not irish enough uh in a lot of ways and i should say too that the political opposition come on the goyle later becomes thin goyle um they are the the party that that establishes and maintains the uh the irish free state that they're very successful in what they do um and and there's a lot of strategy there's a lot of brilliance in in what they do to establish a a stable um nation uh and and fianna fall builds off of that but they they're able to do such things you know such as to Present themselves as being more Irish, you know. For De Valera, who, by the way, was um, once uh, president of the League of Nations or future League of Nations um, leader, um, amongst other things, um, for him to do such a, I think, a, a transgressive thing as to to welcome the papal legation in in Irish, you know, that that's not accidental. And and the party lined uh, the streets uh, with with um, Republican uh, colors and, and banners. And he turned this event into this national moment for the party, uh, and um, yeah, it's 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 this very subtle um, or not so subtle thing that that De Valera does.
1: Um, and then the next, and then this chapter takes a quick turn and all of a sudden I'm reading about Judith Butler and Nikki Sullivan and Edward Said <laughs> it's like, what? Hold on. What, what happened here? Totally thrown for a loop, a good loop. I loved it. But it's uh, a, it's a kind of a shift there. And then, and then you're talking about the process of, you know, like queering and othering it's a very specific thing that's happening. Uh, it's smart, like really well done. That's okay. an interesting choice. Yeah. yeah.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And that, you know, uh, referring to, to gaps, in historiography, uh, thankfully, this has changed a lot. And I don't want to present myself as being in the vanguard of this, because that's not true at all. But um, thankfully, in the last decade or so, um, or more, there's been more work done where you see the application of gender theory, um, and and queer theory, to an extent to to Irish history. Um, And and that's uh, an exciting development. That's a big change. And and, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's something that, that very concretely i think addresses the, the those gaps in 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 irish historiography
1: right on excellent mm-hmm. okay uh so another i would like to read another portion This study of uh, Fianna Fáil's electoral aesthetic has shown that the party, consciously or not, constructed along gendered lines an appealingly aspirational vision of peace and prosperous Ireland, a peaceful and prosperous Ireland, where primordialism and an imagined Irish futurism were were reconciled. More than anything else, Fianna Fáil recast republicanism in a new light, where political action and agency were no longer extra-legal and violent. Rather, the movement was fully ensconced as a defiantly transgressive party engaged in constitutional struggle to recast republicanism as more appealing to the nation's electorate. Electorate. So that's a really grand vision. Uh, did, it, did it work?
0: I think so. <laughs> I'd like to think so, yeah. But yeah. Um, we'll see what, what other people have to say about it. I'm interested in, in the conversation. <laughs> And the gestation for this book has been long enough where I've presented enough at at conferences where people have been encouraging uh, with it. Um, But um, if you're talking about the party itself and whether that worked or not, is that what you were asking?
1: (laughs) Also that I think my opinion is that the book works,
0: you you know, which,
1: which I would tell you uh, if I didn't, But yeah, I think your book works. I would also like to know, but, what happens with the party? What happens in Ireland? Is this? Do they create their Ireland?
0: Yes and no. Um, yes, in terms of their ultimate aim of creating a fully independent Ireland, um, you have the establishment of Eire, E-I-R-E, with with uh, the the nineteen thirty seven Constitution, and then in the nineteen forties, you have the full declaration of an Irish Republic and Ireland leaving um, uh, the the um, British Commonwealth. Um, and as a side note to this, to show you, I think, the power of, of what Fianna Fáil had done is that the declaration of the Irish Republic in the 40s was done by the opposition, done by Fine Gael. And so you see this dramatic shift uh, in in how the party um, presents Ireland. Um the aims of of a of an industrialized Ireland uh, never really come to fruition. Some of that has to do with the scaling back of that vision after the uh, Constitution, also uh, the outbreak of World War II, or as they call it in Ireland, the Emergency, um, and and then uh, you see De Valera becoming um, and his government becoming a little bit more conservative in in um, in. Their economic policy; they become very isolationist in a lot of ways. Um, but that begins to shift in the '50s and '60s under under other people. But the fact of the matter is that that um, as a party, Finnegall is still in existence today. They're uh, very interestingly in a um, coalition government with Finnegoyl. They're enemies for the most part for 80 years. It'd be as if the Democrats and Republicans in the United States joined together, but. The, the, um, the divide between the two parties in Ireland are not as stark as, as the parties in America. But when that happened um, uh, last year, um, this coalition government of the two parties, it was a, a pretty monumental thing to see happen um, because we have these two parties that have been diametrically opposed are now working together. Uh, whether they're working well together or not is another story but um <laughs> but yeah this is this is the basis of of Ireland whether uh w- what the party is doing whether it's it's a conscious reaction against it uh, to what what De Valera was trying to do and in many ways the the more contemporary uh rejection of of the the more conservative aspects of Ireland um uh, are are being undone as Ireland is now becoming one of the more liberal uh, countries in in um, in Europe, uh, if not the world.
1: Mm-hmm. But then there's also this uh, there's this industrial Ireland. But then I'm looking through the images you show in the book, and there's always a plow, right? There's a plow yeah. somewhere. There's a field. There's something. So there's this idea of bucolic old Catholic Ireland as well, which seems to be really integral in the formation of like as the parties of Ireland's self-conception, right? We're speaking Latin as well as Irish here in this meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is extra outside the scope of the book, but I would like to hear you hear what you say. Do you think that's still important in Ireland? Is is the bucolic old Catholic Ireland still around?
0: Um, In some ways, uh, but increasingly, and this is part of the liberalization of Ireland, um, uh, church attendance is down um, the reputation of the church. Has been in, in fairly steep decline. Uh, one of the few things that has kind of helped prop up uh, Ireland, ironically, or the church in Ireland, ironically, is uh, uh, our immigrants. Um, first in the 90s and 2000s, many of them coming from Poland during the, the Celtic Tiger. But um, recent scandals uh, with the Catholic Church, um, you know, the, 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 the global one regarding um, predatory behavior. Um, by priests but also very specific to ireland are the the magdalene laundries of the the role of the church in um controlling women um uh, who, who who are pregnant who become pregnant and and so on and so forth that's a whole other topic but but i think the 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 twin things there of those two uh things in ireland has has reduced um i think the presence of the church i mean ireland is still very uh, a very catholic nation of course but um, we, we're starting to see Ireland catch up to, I think, other parts of Europe in terms of people turning away from from the established uh, church.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. And how about the idea of um, Ireland is a nature nation of farmers?
0: Oh, that's there. Um, that's that's. I think will always be there. That um, that it's it's the biggest part of their economy. The the, the production of of grains and uh, and other things that are being exported, um, that, uh, that it, it's an agricultural nation. Um, speaking of Wisconsin, um, <laughs> the shortcut is to, to compare Ireland in many ways to Wisconsin, that you do have aspects of, of industry, uh, as you know, Milwaukee and Madison, uh, but, but it's still primarily agriculture. It, it's the identity. It's the, this, you know, the, the logo it's, it's, um, It's the past, right? It's that that, that primordial connection to the land. Uh, And so that will be there, uh, and and I'm sure will always be there because of that.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting the way the European countries that are so industrialized love to hold on to that idea that they're Mm -hmm. actually a nation of farmers, you know, like, and Mm -hmm. there's some kind of sacred nature to the land. It's kind of charming. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of silly as well, but... (laughs) Who am I to judge? Um, I love love the arc of this book. I love that it's well-contained. I love that you make such a clear argument and then go and just relentlessly prove it. It's really well done. Um, Excellent work. So congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. And it's great to be done with a book. Yes. It's between covers. Yeah.
0: It is. Absolutely. And and this book um, covered, uh, uh, you know, period of my life. And, um, and, and, uh, it comes out at, um, a particularly good point and, and it's, yeah, it's very exciting. And, and, um, it's, it's nice to, um, to to finally have it out, um, as you know.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. And there's a pathology about one's dissertation that like, you just, you just, (laughs) it's such an important part of your life and it kind of sticks with you and you know, it's yeah, so well done. But there's also then this weird feeling that goes along with not having to write a book, you know, like, you know, cause every time anyone asks you what you're doing this weekend, you're like, well, I got to work on my book. And you've been saying that for, you know, a decade. And, uh, so what, and then there's this weird feeling you're going to work on, Oh no, I'm not. What, <laughs> what will I do? I mean, so yeah. Um, so what are you working on now? What's next?
0: Uh, I have I have two projects. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> one one is uh, um, one I'm really excited about, and I'm really excited to get working on it. Um, again, is uh, what I call the Shadow Metropole project, and um, this actually came out of a side project <laughs> on the dissertation in which I wrote a paper for a class, and my professor said, you know, you need to globalize this. You know, he said that what I read De Valera doing sounds like what people because he was an, he's a Middle East, North Africanist, that, you know, it's similar to what I see with the, the Wafik party in Egypt and other places. And he said, start looking out. And so I, I did. And I found um, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana came to Ireland. Uh, and not only did he come to Ireland, he he met with De Valera. And he said, I want to meet Eman De Valera. And he made a speech in which he says that both de Valera and himself were prison graduates, uh, meaning that um, that they learned to be nationalists through prison. And so he's drawing comparisons between what he's doing and what de Valera is doing. And he goes further to say that what he was doing in Ghana replicates what de Valera was doing in Ireland in this time period that, that, that my book is about and so i was like wow that's great and so i explored that and then once i got the opportunity i started to explore further and found that there's something like four dozen if not more nationalist leaders from outside of of um, uh, europe so africa asia the americas even are coming to ireland and they want to meet de valera they're coming there and they're saying this is this is somebody that we've read about utang the the um you know of the un but also a burmese nationalist said the one thing that got him interested in national politics was that he read a biography of de Valera in in burma um that there was a, a burmese um national party that basically called themselves the Sinn fein of burma there's the Sinn fein of india um and so they're they're highlighting this and There's a lot of work now on global connections of the Irish Revolution of the 19-teens and 20s, but there's nothing other than this project that I'm working on showing the connections between global nationalists and Ireland of the 20s and 30s. And so I'm finding more and more, especially within the British Empire, that you have these parties that are coming to Ireland using Ireland as, as a guide. Right. Uh, I mentioned Burma. Burma um, sent a delegation to Ireland to study their constitution. And the Burmese constitution that was in existence for a short time is based on the Irish constitution of 1937. Um, you have So you have leaders from from Africa, Jomo Kenyatta. Oh, and back to Nkrumah. I haven't confirmed this, but I was told by an African historian that Nkrumah had a son named Eamon de Valera Nkrumah. Which if I find okay. that, then argument done. <laughs> done. <But>, Let's
1: <laughs> we'll do a little dance in the archives. Yes.
0: <laughs> but uh, you even had leaders of the, uh, the non-aligned movement uh, coming. So you have leaders from Algeria, Egypt and whatnot coming to Ireland saying, we want you to lead this. We want you to be a part of it because of your global reputation as being a nation that can push back against empire." And so the book is about that. Um, my favorite uh, anecdote of it is um, a Korean composer by the name of Ik Ta'an, who was exiled from from Korea under uh, in the nineteen thirties. Did a world tour, in which he um, performed or he had orchestras perform his work and he conducted them. But he waited until the tour got to Dublin after being in Berlin, Paris, London, Philadelphia, New York, and whatnot. He waited until he was in Dublin to debut a new piece called the Aguka, which means patriotic song. And he said, I waited to d- till Dublin because nobody but the Irish audience would understand this notion of, of what it means to be oppressed. And so the song he debuted um, is now the uh, the national anthem of South Korea. And so it was debuted in Dublin in the 1930s.
1: Wow! So there's,
0: yeah, so there's this sense that there's this this connection with empire, and so so that's something that I'm really excited about, and and I have tons of uh, of material on it, and and that's what the book I'll be working on next. But I also have another project. This is <laughs> this is something that that has emerged out of the rock and roll book. Is uh, in 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 that book, Dan, the co-author and I um, uh, included a chapter on uh, on punk and um, that's a whole other uh, episode, but. Um, it i was thinking you know is is there an irish post-punk and so i started to investigate it because there are bands u2 of course the virgin prunes my bloody valentine and others and um, i did some research into that and found that there's a distinct moment in which um, irish post-punk is there and so i started to you know talk about the music and everything but then i started to make connections between irish post-punk and the liberalization of ireland as i mentioned before Ireland's increasingly liberalized it's the first nation in the world to allow same-sex marriage through public plebiscite you know the um the t shock up until last year the prime minister is an openly gay biracial man and that wasn't even a thing people
1: yeah they don't like, like his
0: politics but they don't care about his, his sexuality yeah it's... and um and and the, the um uh legalization of abortion amongst other things Ireland's becoming incredibly liberalized and so I, I connected the dots and, and said, "Okay, could post-punk in Ireland, this youthful movement, be a moment that that um, that signposts toward this liberalization mm-hmm. in the late '70s and '80s?" And so, those are the two things that I'm working on. Ooh. now.
1: As if I'm I don't interested have there. To do. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, what and what are you going to do? Be department chair? Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, you are. Um, yeah, I'm interested in that dialectic of like post-punk and liberalism. I want to see how that goes. That's exciting. Yeah, God, that's cool. Your work is very cool. I have been, been racking my brain for a long time now to figure out what we can do together, but I don't know. I, it's, there's just the you know the five hundred years and all of Europe between our our research areas. So
0: yeah, small we'll just make something up. Totally centers of rock and roll, maybe.
1: Like, yeah, like centers of rock and roll. Center of all rock and roll. We can find that place. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, My old friend, in fairness, Mm -hmm. Ken and I have known each other for a while now. Yeah. 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 15 15 years.
0: At least. Yeah. A little bit longer than that. Yeah. I even mentioned your name in the book. So
1: (laughs) I saw. That was sweet. All right. So uh, thanks so much for taking time to talk to me uh, as opposed to a real Irish historian about your book, but I'm, I'm really chuffed. You want to talk to me about it? Um, oh, thank you. So and we'll be back. You know, we'll talk we'll do this again in just a, in a few more years when you finish the next one.
0: Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed.
1: <laughs> Fingers crossed. All right. Take care. All
0: right, thank you so much.